Hello, don't give this tape to Earl fans. And some of you are probably Star Trek fans as well, because what are the odds? The new season of Star Trek Discovery is starting soon on CBS All Access, and you can go to www.thelogbook.com right now. There's a great big banner up top. You can try one week of CBS All Access for free. Binge the first season. Watch all the short treks. Watch the new season premiere. And here's the thing. If you like it enough that you want to stick around to become a paying subscriber to CBS All Access, that helps thelogbook.com stay on the air a lot. And that helps me keep talking to you about the things that I talk to you about. Because I am talking to you right now. It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh me alive. Oh my god. The fitty giver's dead. The crazy thing is then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer? The yum. Oh my god, my Vermont. After that I went into TV. My whole life the tape has been rolling. Which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told. But a word of warning from everyone around me. Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome back to the first 2019 edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a podcast of extraordinary magnitude from thelogbook.com. I'm Earl, the person to whom you are not to give a tape under any circumstances. How you doing? It's been quite a year so far, hasn't it? <laughs> um... And keep in mind, I'm recording this on day 16. So, uh, I recently kind of dipped my toes into, well, okay, I didn't dip my toes. I jumped both feet first into the whole YouTubing thing recently. And that seems to have made a splash with everyone. I, Wow, I didn't even plan to say that. But, um... It certainly seems to have gained an audience, especially the first video edition of Select Game. And so I'm really, really thrilled with that. If you're listening to this because you discovered my uh, YouTube endeavors, and I have no idea what that sound was in the background, probably something cat-related, because cats... If you've just uh, discovered me, hey, how you doing? Welcome aboard. Now, this podcast is just kind of my general, you know, things that don't fit into the other podcasts podcast. And so there's a lot of sci-fi chatter. There's a lot of media chatter and some personal stories as well and Today will be no exception to those. There probably will not be uh, video editions of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, unlike Select Game, because I don't terribly often play video games as part of this podcast because I play nothing but video games on the other podcast. And I think a lot of the video game stuff is going to be uh, moving to YouTube videos. So, I think that's a, a good place for it because there are things to see as well as here. But for right now, there are things to talk about, and that includes science! Science! 
a lot going on, I mean a lot going on, in terms of space science toward the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. I mean, a lot of stuff has happened this year, and we are all, and we're talking about a lot of stuff happening in space science in the face of a crippling, longest ever in history government shutdown. So, and I really, there are people who, you know, there are lots of people saying, hey, everyone, you know, everyone who is working without pay should go on strike. And I, I follow someone on Twitter who is actually a, one of the flight controllers working at Johnson Space Center in Houston who deals with the International Space Station. She can't take off. Uh, something happens up there and there's no one on the ground to consult, those guys could die. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it sounds all fine and well in terms of sticking it to the man, but you really have to closely examine which man you're sticking it to. However, I think uh, this shutdown is sticking it to a lot of men and women who don't need it stuck to them right now and cannot afford to have it stuck to them for political point scoring. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But, you know, just wanting to give a shout out to people at NASA and other agencies, you know, for whom it, you know, the work doesn't stop. You know, because, you know, if you're going to throw a space probe out at the most distant object ever explored by a set of instruments attached to a human-made spacecraft, uh, you don't stand down and empty the mission control room for that. And that's a really good thing, because on New Year's Eve slash New Year morning really depends on where you were at the time. It happened around 10.30 here in Mountain Time because I'm in Utah. The New Horizons space probe passed pretty close to about 2,000 miles away from the Kuiper Belt object 2014 MU69. Now, the Alan Stern and the New Horizons team held a public poll to come up with a I'm going to say more mediagenic name for that object, and they settled on Ultima Thule. And it turns out that <laughs> there are implications within that name that are perhaps not what they intended. And so I really, for my purposes, I have decided to just stick with 2014 MU69. The International Astronomical Union has not ruled on a official name and so there's that 2014 MU69 it looks like a bowling pin in space kind of a cratered bowling pin and you know looking at the images a new uh, a new animated view was released today uh, sort of compiling several on approach views of 2014 MU69 as New Horizons closed in on it. You know, it starts out blurry and gets closer and you can 
you can make out details, you can make out rotation. What my head is having a hard time wrapping itself around is what exactly the rotational axis of this object is. Now, because 2014 MU69 was at least a billion miles further out than Pluto, it will take, I believe I read this correctly, so I, I hope I'm <laughs> giving the right date, it will take through September of 2020 for New Horizons to send all the data back from this flyby. Because at that distance, and as weak as its signal is, you know, that you have to pick out of the background cosmic radiation with the antennas at the, uh, the Deep Space Network arrays in Canberra, Australia, in uh, Goldstone, and in Madrid, the data transmission rate is something like it's in the lower dozens of bits per second so you're talking about I'm gonna show my age here do you remember 110 baud modems back before there were 300 baud modems it's like that in space so you know, another job well done for Alan Stern and the New Horizons team at Johns Hopkins University. It's just yet another little spaceship that keeps on going. And, you know, if we can hurry up and get everyone back on the payroll here on the ground, we could actually have New Horizons starting to look now for another target because it still has fuel on board. But here's the thing about 2014 MU69. We had no idea what we were going to see because when it was located in 2014, hence the name, when it was located through the Hubble Space Telescope, it was a pixel. And now it is more than a pixel, but there was no idea of what we would be seeing when New Horizons got there. And now that it is so far out, New Horizons is really on its own. It's got to point its cameras into deep space and find its own next target because if 2014 MU69 was a pixel to Hubble, another target further out, Hubble may not be able to find it. So that's exciting, and we need to get around to doing that. We need to get around to doing a lot of things. China is on the moon. It's on the cotton-picking moon, and I'll explain that in just a second. The Chang'e 4 lander with the U-2-2 rover. Now, uh, I suppose I should explain the naming there. There was a previous lunar lander that China launched. It was a successful one, and it had a rover named U-2, which I believe translates to uh, a mystical moon rabbit. <laughs> or something of that nature. And of course, as we know, um, the, the first U-2, as soon as shadows fell on it, it, um, it, it pretty much fell asleep. Now, Chang'e 4 landed close to the South Pole on the far side of the moon, the first human-made object to land on the far side of the moon. 
Uh, I've seen a lot of articles saying, hey, why is it such a big deal that China put a robot on the moon when we sent men there 50 years ago? Well, you know, let me tell you, Bubba. <laughs> we didn't... We sent a handful of crewed missions to landing sites along an equatorial belt. We've really sampled a very, very small portion of the moon. And so, yes, Chang'e 4 landing on the far side of the moon, that's a big deal. A rover driving around on the far side of the moon looking around, that's a big deal. Now, I kind of wish they had called it something other than U-2-2, because it instantly makes me want to ask if U-2 is going to create a theme song for U-2-2. But the less said about that, the better. Now, while U-2-2 is <laughs> roving around on the far side of the moon, having a, taken a gander at the surface of the far side, which we have never seen before now, Chang'e 4 has its own experiments going on, including a seed-growing experiment within part of the lander's body, and a cotton sprout has started to grow inside this pressurized, oxygenated chamber on the moon. So there is, there is a cotton sprout growing on the moon. There are other sprouts, however, that have not started growing as yet. I'm sure China will share the data because, you know, everything they're doing down there is new. This is bragging right stuff, so somewhat atypically I am actually expecting China to share the data this time around. So there you go, Shanga 4 and U22 on the cotton picking moon. Now somewhat, somewhat eclipsed by the New Horizons news on New Year's Day, was the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is surveying the asteroid Bennu. Now, the OSIRIS-REx mission actually arrived at, you know, sort of Bennu's sphere of influence, very small sphere of influence, because it is a very small celestial body, late in 2018, but on New Year's Eve 2018, it injected itself into I'm not gonna say its final orbit because there's so much more to the mission than that but into its mapping orbit now here's the funny thing Bennu is a tiny little rock and so its gravity is very weak and so OSIRIS-REx is orbiting this tiny little rock at a distance of something like 0.8 kilometers we're talking about a distance of maybe a mile. That is how high above Bennu it is. And that's going to come in really handy because after it has mapped Bennu thoroughly and a site has been selected by the ground controllers, OSIRIS-REx will actually slowly descend and stick out kind of a, you know, more or less a cup on an arm and it's going to scoop up some of asteroid Bennu to put in a container and send back to Earth. Now, we won't receive that sample until sometime in the 2020s, because Bennu is out there. So, it's, uh, 
you know, it's a big milestone for OSIRIS-REx to circularize its orbit. You know, they had to characterize the environment and the object being orbited first. And, you know, once they had figured out more or less what its gravitational influence and what its size is, which it's kind of diamond-shaped, bizarrely enough, then they were able to figure out how, you know, what their altitude would have to be to safely orbit Bennu before descending to just grab a piece of it. Hot game of grab asteroid going on out there <laughs> beyond Earth orbit. So, a lot of stuff going on. And it's just the 16th of January. How cool is that? Oh, and here's here's another thing, another thing. Apparently, either late this month or in February, SpaceX is going to launch the Demo-1 mission, which will be a Falcon 9 carrying the crude version of the Dragon Capsule. Now, even though this is the crude version of the Dragon Capsule, it will not have a crew. It will be an uncrewed mission of a vehicle intended to carry astronauts to the International Space Station. But it is... They will be the first one of NASA's commercial crew vendors to actually demo the crude version of their vehicle because you know there are there are a lot of suitors lined up for the commercial crew program money you have the Boeing Starliner you have um, a Sierra Nevada corporation is still they're still in the running for their little dream chaser spacecraft which looks like a you know a cute chubby little adorable mini space shuttle and I believe there are a I'm sure that uh, orbital systems which uh, makes the Cygnus resupply craft that flies up there without a, you know without anyone on board but lots of cargo they have something in the wings as well but SpaceX will be the first ones to actually put something in the air and literally see if it holds its air, see if it stays pressurized, see how it handles on return to Earth, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a big step and it's... I, I don't want to sound xenophobic, I really think that a lot of good fruit has been born by cooperation with Russia on the International Space Station, but there are things going on on the ground that make it extremely wise to perhaps untether ourselves from the Soyuz as being the only means of getting crew to the space station. And this is a big step in that direction. So that's what's going on out there in space. Juno has of course flown real close past Jupiter again the Parker solar probe is kind of doing something very similar to what Juno does at Jupiter except it's doing it to the Sun it's in this elliptical orbit that brings it really close really fast and then shoots it further out away safer from the solar radiation and at a place where it can turn around and send data back to Earth that's a really interesting mission although I'm I've 
find myself questioning some of the media headlines about it. You know, it's the first thing to go into the sun. No, it it hasn't gone into the sun. Um, something goes into the sun, baby. It ain't coming out. <laughs> but it's the first to get that close. I mean, it has definitely broken the record for something getting that close. So I eagerly await more findings from the Parker Solar Probe. There's a lot going on out there. I know the loss of flagship missions like Dawn and Cassini, that stings. It, it, it really does sting, and it still stings. There's a Twitter account that continues to tweet raw images from Cassini as if it were still out there. And they're lovely, and I'm like, man, I wish it could go over and get a look at that, except it's not there anymore. So, because they had to pilot Cassini into the atmosphere of Saturn to destroy it when it was about out of maneuvering fuel because you can't just leave it out there where it's going to collide with Titan or Enceladus both of which are really hot candidates for active biospheres beyond Earth and there is a proposal on the table for NASA right now whenever NASA is back in session like the rest of the government they are going to select their next Discovery class mission, and one of the proposals on the table is it's kind of like a little drone, like the little the little camera drones that you can buy now. This one's a bit more robust, obviously, and it will have more scientific instrumentation on it, but the idea is to send it out to Titan, largest moon of Saturn, so it can fly around Titan and get a really good look. You know, what are, you know, we are assuming that what we've seen by radar through the atmosphere of Titan, that you can't you can't see the surface from outside unless you use radar. You know, Cassini's radar views showed what we are assuming are lakes and oceans of liquid methane. What does that look like? And maybe is there a way to sample various sites on Titan and, you know, get just a little bit of data back from that? So I'm sure that that involves an orbiter that stays above Titan to relay stuff back to Earth from the little drone. And you know, I'm pretty sure the drone is not going to be tasked with getting a signal through that atmosphere back to Earth on its own. So that's something to look forward to. You know, it's... On a personal note, it's kind of sobering. You know, you look at mission proposals for putting drones on Titan, or, or flying above Titan, basically, and occasionally setting down, I'm sure. Um, you look at mission proposals for, we're finally going to send something back out to the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. And you look at the time scale on these, you know, you look at the time scale for Europa missions, and, you know, I'm... I'm a space nut. I will always be fascinated by this stuff, but I'm a space nut approaching middle age. And the sobering realization has started to set in that I may see some of these things launch and I may not be around to learn what they find out. So, it's kind of it's kind of bittersweet, but nothing happens fast in space. You know, whether you're talking about getting a mission approved to start developing it on the ground and actually making the thing a real vehicle that will go somewhere, you know, 
in addition to the travel time once you do have it into space. But for right now, I mean, you know, we've got asteroid sample missions. We've got New Horizons just going out there and looking around. We've got we've got rovers on the cotton picking moon. I'm kind of enjoying this bumper crop banquet of things going on out and around the solar system. So now that we've talked about real space, there are some things going on in imaginary space that we need to discuss. fictional space, literally something like half an hour before I started recording this show. Netflix announced that it is doing a series called Space Force. And yes, for those of you immersed in the Sturm und Drang of current political events, yes, it's a sitcom about that Space Force. You know, the one the president would like to add to our armed forces. Space Force on Netflix is co-created and will star Steve Carell of The Office fame and he will be bringing uh, some of the Office creatives with him to bring bring Space Force to life and (laughs) my bet is that Netflix's Space Force will get into orbit (laughs) long before Trump's Space Force does. So, there you go. Now, in something perhaps a little closer, unfortunately, to current reality, yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? I'm asking this like there's someone else in the room, and my dog is sleeping behind me, and she's providing me no show support whatsoever. It was announced by CBS that... Yet another Star Trek spinoff is in the works. Now, this one is a direct spinoff of Star Trek Discovery, and it will involve the deposed Emperor Philippa Giorgio from the Mirror Universe, immersing herself in the shady Black Ops world of Section 31, which is something that was introduced toward the end of Deep Space Nine as kind of the Federation's Black Ops Division. is not actually part of Starfleet, although apparently in the 23rd century world of Discovery, Section 31 it has a toehold in Starfleet because they have their own badges and they've got their own you know, they've got their own folks on board the Discovery. That was made very clear in Season 1, although it seems nothing came from that. Now, there was a short scene, I don't know if it was a deleted scene or something specially filmed, after the end of season one of Discovery. Now, in a way, you could almost consider this the first short trek. In 
fact, that's a hell of a good idea. I really need to go back and put that little scene in the logbook and lump it in with the other short treks. I, I think this was kind of like the dummy run for the short treks. It was a scene involving someone from Section 31 trying to recruit uh, Mirror Giorgio, played by Michelle Yeoh, to join their organization because she obviously is very well acquainted with a very uh, backstabby, skullduggery way of getting things done. And that's that's who Section 31 is, and that's what Section 31 does. Now, my own reaction to this news... First off, I love Michelle Yeoh. And let me say this about that. I wish this was a spin-off about Captain Philippa Giorgio, because I was so disappointed two episodes into Discovery to learn that... You know, this wasn't going to be the, the Captain Giorgio and Michael Burnham and Saru show because that was such a great dynamic. In that first episode, they established such a fantastic dynamic among those three characters that uh, that's what I want more of. I'm not as crazy about Emperor Giorgio. However, let me also put this on the table. He, here's the thing. If you listen, if listen, if you listen to me talking like I've got a mouth full of licorice, if you listen to the uh, Mission Log podcast at all, John and Ken are going through Deep Space Nine right now, and as I record this, the most recent episode that dropped was the Deep Space Nine two-part episode, The Maquis, which involved a group of settlers trying to somewhat enjoy the protection of the Federation while willfully setting up shop outside of Federation borders, or actually what it is, the borders shifted, but they didn't want to relocate, but they still want the Federation to cover their butts. And there was a... There was a pretty lengthy discussion of, you know, how is, how is this Star Trek... You know, how is, you know, you're setting up a resistance movement within Starfleet that is taking the side of these colonists who refuse to relocate even though they now know that they are in mortal danger from the Cardassians. And so there was a lengthy discussion about, you know, how is this still kind of the sunny, hey, in the future we are all better people and society is better and we've gotten over so much of this stuff that pervaded the original Star Trek, and especially The Next Generation. Now, the original Star Trek, there was so much conflict going on, and there were so many people setting off to get out of, you know, get out from under the Federation's thumb and go set up colonies elsewhere that, you know, you figured, okay, there's either taxation going on, or, and, and that's kind of backed up by one of the Short Treks, and we'll get back to Short Treks later in the show. Um... The, the latest short trek, the last short trek before Discovery Season 2 commences, Harry Mudd said something about, you know, the Federation tax man being, you know, basically all up in his grill, his space grill, in space, and that was a really interesting thing to throw into what is generally regarded as a cashless society of the future 
where, you know, there really is no... As far as Federation citizens are concerned, supposedly there's no economy to have to deal with. Um, there are hints in the original series that perhaps life under the Federation isn't the bright and sunny thing that Next Gen paints it as. And and so this sort of gets into, you know, is Star Trek a in fact a utopia? Or are we used to seeing idealists like Picard say, yes, it's a utopia, when in fact, you know, Picard's in a very privileged position, and furthermore, he is, you know, flying around in the Federation flagship. He is... He has well-appointed quarters, and he's not having to deal with existential threats next door. One thing I always appreciated about Deep Space Nine was that it kind of took the idea of Federation as utopia and started holding its feet to the fire a bit, started challenging it, seeing if it actually stood up. And by the end of the show, yes, it, it still stands up, and... You know, we're welcoming Bajor into the Federation by the end of Deep Space Nine. So, I there is room for darker storytelling. Now, here's where I have a problem a little bit with a Section 31 show. And just hear me out a little bit on this. We are in a different place in society. Whether you're talking about American culture or just human culture, we are in a vastly different place uh, ever since... Oh, two years after Deep Space Nine went off the air. Yeah, ever ever since the year that Voyager went off the air, you know, we're talking about 2001. A lot of our entertainment has changed into... I don't know, it, it, it's almost like... And, and I'm sure this... I'm sure this term will offend somebody. If it doesn't, I'm not doing my job. It's almost like our entertainment has in many ways become PTSD porn. It's like, yes, we are going to traumatize the hell out of our characters in all the ways that we've been traumatized in the real world and, you know, in dealing with all the self-doubts about ourselves and our cultures that we are dealing with in the real world. And, you know, we're going to put them through the ringer and see who they are coming out the other side. Now, sometimes that gives you greatness, like the early seasons of Sci-Fi Channel's Battlestar Galactica. And sometimes it gives you this real quagmire that you can't wait to stop watching, like, say, the later seasons of Sci-Fi Channel's Battlestar Galactica. I loved that show for the first two years. You know, they traumatized the hell out of the characters, and you saw them justifying their faith in the culture that had brought them into being and in the institutions that had allowed them to survive. And then the later seasons of Battlestar Galactica, really starting with the occupation of Caprica and then everything afterward, just seemed to spiral into this dismal mess of depression and, you know, now we have characters offing themselves, committing suicide because it's too hard to go on. And is that entertainment? 
So here's the thing. Old Deep Space Nine episodes about Section 31. Old Babylon 5 episodes about the conspiracy within the Earth government aligning itself with the shadows. And with the, uh, you know, and with the darker elements of the telepath governing organization, the Psycorp. You know, those shows dealt with civil liberties in a way that provided some uplift at the end. You know, even even when they were doing their best to portray really gray areas and the fact that there would not be easy solutions, they did leave you in a place where at least, you know, there is a solution. Stuff that has aired since 9-11, frankly... You know, and I'm talking about stuff like the 4400 and Battlestar Galactica lost, uh, really just about lost me going into its third season. Yeah, interesting parallel with Galactica because it was all about torturing its characters and seeing who they were on the other side and seeing if they were, quite frankly, garbage humans when they came out of that. You know, who's going to sell each other out first? I don't... That's not fun, and that's not what I want to watch. So, Section 31 is kind of a troubling concept in that a Section 31 show now is not going to be made the same way that a Section 31 show would have been made in the 90s. You know, in the 90s, it would have probably been kind of James Bondish. Now it's going to be more like Star Trek 24. And I don't want that. I, you know, I don't need something jammed into the Roddenberry future. Which, please understand, that's a, a really convenient shorthand for the future that was perhaps in some ways conceived by Roddenberry, but was refined greatly by people like the late John D.F. Black. Um, David Gerald, Gene Kuhn. I I don't wish to assign authorship of their concepts to Roddenberry, but in a way it's kind of become bigger than all of them. And so when I talk about, you know, the Roddenberry vision or the Roddenberry future, I'm talking about a setting established by a great many creative minds. That being said, we're not really in a Roddenberry future anymore. Discovery threw a lot of people off because it went into these dark places. And yet, by the last episode of the season, when you have Seru stand up out of the captain's chair and say, we are Starfleet. And, you know, until Admiral... Cornell, you know, this is not Cornwell. Cornell, yeah. Um, you know, basically telling this admiral who has, you know, for lack of any better solutions, has fallen in line with a really bad solution. And he basically stood up and told her, okay, I'm, you know, I get that these are your orders, but we're out here with the ground truth of this, and that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do something else other than what you're telling us to do. And so Discovery, in that moment, to me, really proved that it belongs 
on the same pedestal with the other shows. Wonderfully so. What I'm worried about with Section 31 is that I don't want a Star Trek show telling me what crap humans can be. I live with humans every day. They're delicious, but they... You know, I don't need my semi-utopian, quasi-utopian future telling me, oh, and by the way, your utopian future is populated by trash humans. That's not what I need. I don't want Star Trek Breaking Bad. I don't want Star Trek The Shield. If I wanted Breaking Bad, I'd watch Breaking Bad. Here's a spoiler. I never could make it through Breaking Bad. I think I saw... <coughs> Excuse me. Probably about seven episodes of Breaking Bad total scattered throughout the entire series because I had friends who kept on telling me, you know, hey, you're big on on TV writing and the evolution of TV writing. And this, you really need to be watching this because it's great writing. Well, it was great writing going into dark places that I just didn't find entertaining. It might have been the best TV writing in the universe. I... You know, I'm not going to deny that that's a possibility, but I don't need TV writing uh, telling me what's what with people's failings. I know that. I am a people. I have failings myself. But more to the point, I come from a state. I didn't originate in Utah. I came from Arkansas. And I started working in radio at a very young age in Arkansas. And I got to see a lot of vital talents burn themselves out, uh, you know, doing meth. You know, for really no good reason. They were frustrated with their lives feeling stalled out. You know, I can relate to that. That doesn't mean I want to destroy myself. So, you know, it's really hard for me to watch Breaking Bad, which is a show about a guy who is, <coughs> you know, life basically corners him to where he has no good solutions, and so, hey, he's going to start cooking meth. That's fine. I don't want to watch that for entertainment. When I watch something Star Trek, I want to see something that says, we are going to be better. Now, yes, our ideals will be challenged because, you know, as a human being of a certain age, I can tell you that once you get out of, you know, once you get out of school and once you are having to adult on your own, your ideals will be challenged. Your religious beliefs, your worldview will be challenged. And not all of your beliefs will stand in the face of reality. But you can still be the better person coming out the other side, and that's what I want from a Star Trek show. <coughs> um, what I don't want is, you know, hey, we're going to sneak around and do Black Ops stuff, and we're going to do Star Trek 24. Now, here's why I'm sticking around for this. The Section 31 spinoff is being created by Erica Lippold and Beyond Kim who are two writers who have done some of my favorite Discovery and Short Treks scripts. Um, I have a huge amount of faith in them as writers and as concept creators to recognize that 
you know, there are some dark rabbit holes this thing could go down that it doesn't really need to go down, that no one really needs it to go down because that would cease to be entertainment and would, you know, become one of these things like Breaking Bad where it's just a treatise on see how awful humans can be just in case humans haven't been awful to you personally here you can watch humans being awful as entertainment and uh, I, I don't wanna in addition to those two writers being in you know creating the section 31 series and and a really important thing to point out is this is the first Star Trek series created by women and they will also be the showrunners. And so you have, you know, your main showrunners doing the day-to-day -day stuff on this will be women. The star is a woman. This is a big deal. This is, this is a further step out than putting Catherine Janeway in the captain's chair aboard Voyager. Because Voyager had three co-creators, only one of whom was a woman. And let me tell you, it, I will stand by this. I mean, this is one of those... You know, the meme, the guy sitting out at the table, changed my mind, and, you know, whatever statement, you know, gets altered from person to person. You know, here's my change my mind statement. When Jerry Taylor left Star Trek Voyager, you could suddenly tell that this show that basically revolved around two female leads at that point, you were dealing with Janeway in Seven. <coughs> there was a a sheen of unreality to it because these two strong female characters were being written by a writer's room full of 30-something men. And it showed. There are so many ways in which it showed. And I know a lot of credit is given to Voyager for you know, basically flying the ship through the glass ceiling. But there are almost just as many ways in which it didn't, and it should have. And so that's something to look forward to here with Section 31. The other thing is, from a... I always like to, you know, get my head around concepts, and, you know, if I were the showrunner, how would I make this work? I'm a frustrated writer at heart. We don't know what's going to happen to Emperor Giorgio in Season 2 of Discovery. Events may transpire that leave her in a place where she wants to preserve the Federation rather than twirl her mustache and say, Ha! I am such a badass. Look at me. I am wearing leather head to toe, and I'm just going to go shoot up whoever I want. Giorgio may be a completely different character coming out of Season 2 than she was going into it. So, who knows? I mean, you may wind up with Mirror Giorgio deciding that, hey, you know, this Federation thing isn't all that bad, it needs to be preserved, it deserves to survive as a societal system better than the Terran Empire did, and maybe I'm going to reform Section 31, or try to reform it, try to restrain it from within, rather than let it give in to its basest instincts. That would be a cool show to see. Now, <laughs> having said that, I have no idea how would you how you would get Mirror Giorgio from from her starting point to that point. But hey, there's a whole season of Discovery that's going to start literally tomorrow night as I record this. And so, yeah, I'm on board. Let's let's see how this happens. I, you know, I will be watching section 31. I am uh 
I was kind of skeptical at first, and then the funny thing is, the more I thought about it, the more I talked myself into sticking around for it. So this will not be the first Star Trek that I decide, yeah, it's not for me. <clears throat> so, there's there's my rant about the Section 31 spinoff, and quite a lengthy one it was, too. <laughs> um, the Orville could be picked up for Season 3, thanks to the tax man. Let me explain that just a little bit. Um, season 2 of the Orville has already begun. However, the state of California is waving a carrot in front of uh, Fox, the network carrying the Orville, to pick up the show for a third season in the form of um, tax incentives on production costs, totaling something like 18 million bucks. That's, um, <clears throat> of course, as much as a sci-fi TV show costs to get <laughs> made these days. That's like, oh, that might pay for three whole episodes of The Orville, because The Orville is not a cheap-looking show. So, we will see what happens there. I personally hope it gets picked up for a third season. I'm enjoying the second season tremendously, and we'll talk about that later. Black Mirror Season 5 did not materialize as expected between Christmas and New Year's. However, we did, of course, get Bandersnatch, which was the basically the choose-your-own-adventure book of Black Mirror episodes, and it's fascinating and fatalistic. However, we will actually be getting a season of more traditional uh, Black Mirror episodes in 2019, and it's kind of interesting because one of the showrunners has basically given a statement saying that some of the upcoming episodes in the fifth season of Black Mirror will not be bummers, as they have been in the past. Black Mirror is a show that I have to watch in very small doses, like maybe one or two episodes at a time, and then a long break before I pick it up again, because of what I was just talking about, you know, sort of the, the trash humans as entertainment factor. Um, there's an episode called Shut Up and Dance, a Black Mirror episode called Shut Up and Dance that involves, you know, this kid who is forced into doing, you know, just a series of terrible, terrible things in order to, you know, basically satisfy someone who claims to hold the, you know, hold the strings of that kid's future and his reputation. And... <clears throat> It, it turns out by the end of the episode that the whole thing is just about punking people and seeing how far they, how, you know, how much you can make them dance, basically, like puppets on a string. I, I did not find that entertaining. I found it disheartening. It was one of those things that saps your faith in humanity rather than restoring it. Whereas one of my favorite things that I watched in all of 2018 was the Black Mirror episode Hang the DJ, which had this kind of hopeful, upbeat, uncertain, but upbeat ending. That's all I really ask from Black Mirror. I know it's not going to give me, you know, my Star Trek utopia, but Hang the DJ was one of my favorite things that I watched on TV last year. You know, out of out of all shows and all episodes of shows that I watched, I really loved that episode of Black Mirror. And so, I'm really excited that Season 5 might have um, more like that. 
more like that, hopefully. Not that Bandersnatch wasn't cool, but, you know, I, I can only take so much of the fatalistic trash human as entertainment stuff before I ask myself, do I want to chop it up or bury it? In the previous installment of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, I went on a little trip down memory lane through various odd jobs that I've held that really the definition for that was they were not in my wheelhouse. Most of my working adult life has been spent in broadcasting and specifically in the creative side of broadcasting. And so... I kind of wanted to chase that down with the story of what is probably the best job I've ever had. So let me tell you the story of the prime time invasion. Please stand by. This is an invasion. This fall, UPM 32 takes you further into the unknown. This fall, prime time will never be the same. This fall, you will witness a prime-time invasion. Coming soon to UPN 32. Okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit, because that was late 1997. That was a spot that I wrote and produced in 1997, a TV spot. And... Since this is an audio podcast, I will include links on the on the show page at www.thelogbook.com slash this tape, leading you to the YouTube videos of some of these spots. And not YouTube videos of some of these spots. We'll get into that later. But first, to understand how I wound up living in Wisconsin for two years, you have to rewind to about 19... 1995 was more or less the year that I broke out of the TV control room that I had been working in for a couple of years and into TV production. And I did this in a way that would probably get most people fired these days. <laughs> the station that I worked at was a very, the first TV station that I worked at, coming out of radio, was a very low-power Fox Station in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The picture looked like hell, no matter how hard the station management and the rest of us tried to make it not look that way. We used to joke that the signal was so low power that the reason there was no light bulb in the break room fridge was because if the light bulb came on when you opened the door of the fridge, it would overpower the transmitter. That's not quite the truth, and yet I suspect it's uncomfortably close to it. <laughs> now here's the thing, I wouldn't have given up the experience of working at that station for anything because it was a great 
place to learn. It was a great place to make mistakes, <laughs> where very few people could see them. <laughs> and it was a it was a place where basically anything went. I mean, <laughs> really inadvisably in some ways. There was no music library at this TV station, which is the only TV station I've ever worked at that didn't have access to some sort of music library. Their take on it was, you know, just bring bring something in from home if you have to. Make sure it's nothing too recognizable so we don't get sued. And that's a great thing to say to someone who has spent the past four year, you know, spent you know, the past four or five years working as a disc jockey. Because let me tell you, if there's anything that disc jockeys accumulate working in radio, it's uh, CDs of music that comes in from little indie labels that are trying desperately to get stuff played that the program director just basically said, <laughs> no. And so you wind up taking a lot of free music home that no one else has ever heard of. And so this is why, um, you know, at least in the 90s and, <laughs> you know, late 80s and the 90s, disc jockeys would have a wider repertoire of music than the stations they worked for because they would wind up liberating all of these demo CDs that would be sent out by hopeful promoters and bands. So that's the sort of environment I was working with going into TV was, you know, just bring something in that's not going to get us sued. Make spots that aren't going to get us sued. Okay. So the spot that got me out of the control room and into the yeah, into the production area was a spot for Star Trek Voyager, ironically. And here's how this worked. In at the beginning of nineteen ninety five, Fort Smith, Arkansas did not have a United Paramount Network affiliate. There was no UPN station to run Voyager in Fort Smith. And so Paramount fell back on its backup plan at the time, which was to uh, sell Voyager as a syndicated show to the station that was already carrying Deep Space Nine and that had carried reruns of the original series and had carried Next Gen. And ironically, this was a station I wound up working for years later. It was the local ABC station. And the for many many years i you know for the entire run of next gen i faithfully watched uh i faithfully watched next gen at 10:35 on saturday nights right after a sports call-in show that this station did that of course was dealing with uh you know lots of people calling in with comments about arkansas razorbacks football usually and next to nothing about high school football where the you know real game was being played but the the station I worked for, the management decided, you know what, we're going to start a second string of low-power stations. Our Fox station did not have one central transmitter because they started out with a low-power transmitter that could, couldn't even quite reach all of Fort Smith, frankly. The, you know, the city of record that this station was supposedly serving, not all of the city could receive the signal, and I'm sure that that violated FCC rules somewhere. 
And so we had this string of pearls, this, these transmitters running up and down this, that whole side of the state, repeating the signal. You know, basically like, um, basically like ham radio repeaters, like you know, like CB repeaters, or any other kind of, you know, signal repeater that you could think of. This was doing that with a TV signal, and the further out you were from, you know, the epicenter of that transmitter the weaker the signal looked and the more like crap the picture and sound looked. We were not a well-loved station, I'll put it that way, by, by the public. So we were the underdogs and we had no budget. However, the station owner said, you know what, I'm going to start, you know, I'm, I have filed for two more transmitters and you know what? We're going to put UPN on that. Originally, it started out it was going to be a sports station running, you know, just whatever syndicated sports packages they could get, like Cardinals baseball. And the, you know, the funny thing there was, hmm, you know, we'll, we'll start out with that, and then we'll see if we can get the UPN affiliation. And the station actually went on the air. This, this second station, low-power station, went on the air before UPN premiered. But by that point, Paramount Television had already sold Voyager to our rival ABC station across town. And so I, uh, I had learned how to use the graphics system that was originally purchased to do weather casts in the evenings between 9 and 9.05 p.m., basically right after Fox Network programming and before we started our local syndicated stuff. And I believe, if I remember correctly, we always went into, uh, we went from Fox to our little weather cast, which uh, our, our meteorologist was not actually a meteorologist at all. He's a former radio guy like myself named Mike. And... Uh, he was he was presentable. He looked good in a suit. So by God, he got to be a weatherman for a while. And <laughs> I was I kind of got my head around the graphics computer that they bought for this, which was situated in the control room. And sometimes, you know, in between things to do in the control room, I would fiddle around on the graphics computer. It was like a forerunner to, to Photoshop, and you could actually do a still store of video and pull it in and modify it and you could actually build transparent frames around stuff that would stay on the screen and you have to keep in mind we were a low budget station we did not have a Chiron per se we had <clears throat> these really old uh, video text <laughs> character generators out of the late 70s or early 80s anything we put on the air with those my god it looked like something that came out of an Atari 800 and <laughs> you know it looked, it looked like something out of a VIC-20 in 28 column mode it looked terrible it looked very computerized and <clears throat> I really think at that point that equipment was only being sold to small market cable carriers to uh local tag stuff on cue. You know, little phone tones that you would hear uh, coming out of a commercial break on CNN. That was, you know, that was a cue tone to kick up a little graphic or something saying, you know, whatever your local cable company's name was over the CNN logo. 
We were laughably low power at this Fox station and, and its new younger sibling, the sports station, which I had demonstrated enough of a command of the graphic system that first I became kind of the producer of the nightly weathercast. You know, I spruced up the graphics package that we were using so that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Atari 800 looking, I'll put it that way. And that sort of led into, hey, you know what, we could plug this, you know, we could plug a VTR into this thing and have it output graphics that we could use for spots that would look a lot better than these terrible low-res character generators that we are using right now. And once I demonstrated that, then there started to be some some murmurs from the management about, you know what, maybe Earl shouldn't be in the control room, maybe Earl should be in the production room. And I was all for that because that was really what I wanted to be doing. I, you know, I really didn't want to be sitting there just running commercial breaks in network shows and you know, that being the extent of my expertise, I had already dabbled with video editing at home. I understood the theory behind video editing. You have to keep in mind that this was in the pre-nonlinear editing days. This was... We were editing on three-quarter inch umatic tape at this time. And we either had one of these horrible character generators in the loop, or we had an Amiga 2000 running Video Toaster 2.0 which was a step above the horrible character generators, but only so much. Around the time that the second station was started, someone who had been doing uh, kind of low-end production work as a freelancer sold their equipment to our station manager. You know, it was just kind of a, kind of a handshake man-to-man deal. You know, here's a bunch of my stuff I need to get out from under it here's how much I want you to buy it for. And, you know, Bill, of course, was like, yeah, we'll take it. And included with that was this great roll-around rack. You know, this had to have been used for live production out in the field somewhere, maybe doing uh, local sports or something. It was an Amiga 4000 with Video Toaster, you know, Video Toaster 4000 installed on it, with LightWave this time. LightWave was curiously absent from the... <laughs> from the Amiga 2000 video toaster that we already had in the building, which really honestly made me wonder if we were running an official licensed version of the software. I mean, I know there's hardware that has to be present for it to run, but, you know, this this place was so low budget, there's nothing I really would have put past them. And so I started interfacing this Video Toaster 4000 with this graphics system that we had purchased for the purpose of doing weather casts, and one of the first things I did was sort of a speculative spot. You know, since we weren't able to get the UPN affiliation in time for the launch of Star Trek Voyager in January 95, you know, what if we, uh, you know, if in fact this station turns out to be a UPN station, can we get Voyager back? What would that ad campaign look like? What would that promo campaign look like? And it looked a lot like me doing a homemade Okudagram on the graphics computer using this Video Toaster 4000 to shrink some 
footage from Voyager that I had... Here's the thing. I... In my downtime at the station, I would catch satellite feeds of Next Gen and DS9 and then Voyager and Babylon 5, and I would take them in the back in the production room and edit the commercials out, you know, dub it down to another three-quarter inch tape, which is still better than VHS. I mean, you lost a generation, but you were losing a generation of broadcast resolution. And then I would... There was a VHS deck back in the production room because, of course, you always had to run spots off or clients for approval, and you had to take it to them on VHS. It was a VHS deck back there in the production room, and I would copy these commercial-free, straight-from-the-satellite episodes of the shows that I was into off to VHS and and, and take them home. <clears throat> so, yeah, right there, no one's ever going to hire me again. Anyway, the... Uh, so I had episodes of Voyager on three-quarter inch tape stashed away in my locker in the back of the building. And so I just made this speculative spot. Hey, you know, if we wanted to, you know, if we wanted to snatch Voyager back from Channel 40, this is what it might look like. And there was no there was no voiceover, it was just music. It was the Voyager music, which by that time going into season two, you're very recognizable. And there were some sound effects because, hey, I was a Trekkie and I brought my own sound effects CDs from home. You know, so much for uh, so much for keep it unrecognizable, but it fit this spot like a glove. And so, there you go. It, it was a spot advertising the Star Trek Voyager was moving from the ABC station in Fort Smith, Arkansas, to this upstart horrible-looking UPN station in Fort Smith, Arkansas that a fraction of the people <laughs> in Channel 40's broadcast radius would be able to see. And in fact, Channel 40 fought us on this. I, I know at one point they threatened to get lawyers involved because we started running the spots too early, which, by the way, the spec spot that I did went to air as is. No revisions. I'm a big fan of once in a blue moon doing an attention-grabbing spot that has no voiceover. So you actually have to come from around the corner of the kitchen and look at the TV and see what's going on. I think that's a, a great way to do things in the minority. You can't do every spot like that, but once in a while, if you want to get people's attention, you need to uh, you need to do it by not having some idiot like me burbling behind a microphone from you know frame zero <laughs> onward and so we uh, we got the UPN affiliation channel 40 pitched a hissy fit about that and of course I'm sure threatened to bring lawyers in on the deal but Paramount wanted UPN affiliates they wanted all their shows shown and not just Voyager and so you know, with Bill promising that we would expand our reach and add more transmitters, and you know, and most importantly, try to get on the local cable system, which didn't happen for quite a while. Um, all of a sudden, we were the UPN affiliate station as well, and the uh, you know, UPN had a, a thing that they sent out to all the affiliates. You know, here are the great ideas from various other affiliates around the country that you could be using. 
And I saw that they were doing that, and I did some black and white screen grabs. Yeah, I did some screen grabs of my Voyager spot, reduced them to black and white for print, and and emailed those to the uh, you know affiliate relations at UPN, saying, "Well, here's what we did at our little upstart rebel UPN station," and uh, it was at about that time that it occurred to me. You know, I'm putting in a lot of hours on production. You know, because I'd finally been moved. I was moved at first from this hybrid of doing control room and then production, and then I was moved fully into production with the understanding that if I needed to do, be a backup control room operator, I could. And so that's that's kind of how I broke out of the control room. Was I? was messing around with this stack of equipment that had not been installed anywhere that had just been bought and I was rewiring it myself which is a big no-no in TV because you know the things are wired up the way they are by the station engineers for a reason and you go changing the wiring you change how stuff works and how stuff looks you change how stuff balances as far as you know, the luma and the chroma and so on, all the, all those great analog settings that very few people seem to worry about these days, unless they are actually actively involved in production. And so you, you you don't go doing stuff like that. But I demonstrated that I could do it and put it back the way it was and not break it. Most of the time, I'm not gonna say I did that every time. Uh, there's actually, for, for those of you who have uh, who read my book of memoirs, Fatherhood, Fandom, and Fading Out, there is, <laughs> there is a chapter in there <laughs> involving one of the times that I did not put it right <laughs> before it hit air, and um, hilarity and an unintentional Babylon 5 cameo ensued in the middle of a broadcast of Cops. But anyway, I demonstrated that I... I understood the technical side of the equipment. I understood how to make it do stuff that looked way better than what we were already doing. And so I got pushed out of the control room into production. And, you know, kind of ironically, Star Trek was sort of the vector of attack that got me, you know, onto my chosen career path at last. But at the same time, that you know, sort of backup clause about, you know, you could still fill in in the control room. That was happening a lot. And I would wind up putting in eight hours in production, you know, eight or ten hours in production. And then I'd have to put in four or six, eight more hours in the control room, you know, because you have people who just, just call in sick, just stop showing up. That was a big problem with us. The pay wasn't great at this station. The pay was about as good as the signal. Uh, I'll put it that way. And so you had lots of people who came in, uh, spent a lot of time training, and then once they realized what was being asked of them, they were just like, <laughs> screw it, and they'd never show up again. And you'd wind up putting in double shifts, triple shifts, unannounced, unscheduled. You know, I had no life, and I kind of wanted a life. I was in my early 20s. I was single. I was really enjoying doing the TV production stuff I wanted to be doing. Um, I also wanted to be doing other things and people. And that just wasn't working out with this 
schedule where I was routinely putting in 18 hours a day at the station. So I started sending out the reel. Now, those of you who've been in the business, it, you know, if you have been in this business and you've been in it a certain number of years, <laughs> not unlike myself, um, you know what the reel is. The reel is your show reel of your best spots. You probably assemble it on three-quarter inch umatic tape. You probably assemble it on, you know, Betacam SP, whatever the medium was your station was using. And then you, you kind of steal that tape and hide it away in your locker somewhere, and that's your tape. And you make VHS dubs of it, you know, as soon as you can afford the next round of VHS blanks. And you mail those tapes and your resume off to every station that has a mailing address in the continental United States. Although at one point I did actually send a tape to a station in Alaska. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't re restricting myself. And because I wanted, you know, it was like, okay, this is cool. I'm doing what I want to be doing, but I'm doing kind of the, the behind the Behind the Billy, <laughs> behind the building back alley version of it, I have no money to spend. I'm having to bring in my own resources to do this, and you know it's cool. I was winning awards. I the Voyager campaign won an Addy Award at the local level after I had to go through this whole torturous process to prove that it was not a locally tagged network spot. That no, this whole thing was something that had come out of my brain whole cloth and that the network was not involved on any level because UPN did not have any ready-made spots for a station that was picking up its affiliation going into the second season of the network which was the uh, late summer early fall of 1995 there were no ready-made spots for that you had to roll your own and I did Voyager wasn't the only show that I concentrated on, but it was the only established show UPN had that survived from its mid-season start into that fall season. Voyager was the only show that made it. Everything else got cancelled, and so that was literally the only thing you had to hang your hat on, and of course it's a Star Trek show. It's an awfully big thing to hang your hat on, and that got people hooked into the uh, you know the shows going into the second year. I really liked the second year of UPN. You had uh, Deadly Games. No one remembers that. I had Lavar Burton was an executive producer of that, and it was kind of a it was a cross between a virtual reality take on a superhero show, sort of in the mold of '60s Batman. I really liked it. And, you know they got and very much like Batman, they got all star people in as the villains that these two kids had to, you know, suit up in their VR gear to face. And Christopher Lloyd was one of the big bads, if I remember correctly. And it was a fun little show. Whatever happened to that? Is that even... Does that come out on DVD? You, you know what? If it has, I will put it in the shop and I will put a link on the show page at www.thelogbook.com slash this tape. Trust me, Deadly Games is a lot of fun. Nowhere Man was a lot of fun, uh, which was the show that got me turned into a lifelong fan of Bruce Greenwood. You know, in, 2000, in the run-up to the 2009 Star Trek movie, they said Bruce Greenwood is Captain Pike. I remember just jumping up and down and punching the air and saying, yes, because 
Bruce Greenwood was awesome in Nowhere Man. And that is a show that is covered in the logbook. And, man, I hope Deadly Games is on DVD because I need to order the DVDs and put those in the episode guides <laughs> for everyone's entertainment and edification. Um, so UPN was doing better going into that fall season as far as programming. And it was, you know, it was really fun to work it. But I was kind of throwing myself at the brick wall of making spots out of nothing. The network provided spots, you know, episodic spots for shows, and they provided launch spots for all the new shows. But as far as establishing the station identity, that was, that was on you. If you were working in station promotions... And the thing was, I had already been, I had already thrown myself against the much harder and more painful brick wall of commercial production enough that I had decided I wanted to be in station promotions rather than production. Commercial production, you're going out there and you are producing spots for paying clients, your actual commercials that are in your commercial breaks. Station promotions, you are making spots advertising the station and its public outreach and its programming. That to me was a lot more fun. That was something I could get my head around because I was already, you know, kind of an entertainment insider junkie at that time. And so I was really leaning heavily towards station promotions. And in fact, we had a we had a very nice lady who was handling station promotions and she finally left and said, uh, you know, it's all yours now, Earl. I uh, I don't envy you. And, you know, what this turned into was I was doing eight hours of work on paid commercial spots, and then I was putting in another eight hours of work on station promo spots. And then, you know, if there was any time left that I wasn't asleep, hey, Earl, could you pick up this control room shift? And, you know, it's... Um, I wanted there to be more to my life than work, and I'll, I also recognized very much that work was killing me. I, uh, spring of 97, I went into the hospital because I had a gallbladder infection. Now, what I did not know was that it was a gallbladder infection. The first gastroenterologist I went to said, you know, as much as you're working, this is almost certainly an ulcer. Here, start taking, you know, start taking this milk of magnesia type stuff all the time and treat it as an ulcer. It was not an ulcer. And in fact, that milk of magnesia type stuff was the worst thing that you could pour into an infected gallbladder. And I collapsed at work in the spring of 97. And uh, the guy who was in charge of live production, you know, punching live shows like our morning show and the sports coverage and so on, he had to drive me to the nearest hospital emergency room in the middle of a tornado warning. <laughs> Which was kind of funny. I barely remember this. He told me about the tornado warning later. I barely remembered it because I was like, man, it's dark outside. Is it night already? And he's like, uh, no, the sky is that black, Earl, because he stayed with me until they got me into a room. And I had to have emergency surgery to remove my gallbladder because it had been treated, it had been mistreated, misdiagnosed and mistreated as an ulcer. And 
which was apparently the worst thing you could do with an infected gallbladder. And so if they didn't get it out of me that very moment, it was going to kill me dead. This was kind of a low point. Yeah, I'm sitting here trying to talk about the best job I ever had. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking about the worst one, and I haven't even gotten to the best job I ever had. This is all, this is all background. Um, you know, basically, this was this was the nadir of me. You know, having the realization this job was killing me, and now here it was literally killing me, because the assumption that it was an ulcer resulting from overwork sounded so plausible. Work did play into it. Work did have, you know, a, a significant role to play in this misdiagnosis. And so here I was, laying in the hospital for all I knew, dying. I could not reach my dad. I couldn't reach my brother. You have to keep in mind this was in the day before cell phones. And so you were trying to reach their landline. My dad was out, you know, doing what my dad was usually doing, which was usually, uh, you know, he was out on his boat drinking. Um, couldn't reach my brother. My brother couldn't help anyway because my dad was just across the border in Oklahoma. My brother was in Austin. There's nothing he could have done for me. But, you know, I, I left messages on both of their answering machines. And, you know, prob probably a little bit overdramatic, but for all I knew, I was saying goodbye. And so, I, uh, all this time, in the background of, you know, all this going on, up to the spring of 97, I had been sending tapes out as I could afford them, looking for another station to rescue me from Fort Smith, Arkansas. The uh, there's there's a little coda on the gallbladder surgery, which was it was screwed up. A bunch of uh, st a bunch of stones, a bunch of gallstones, were left tied up, sealed off in the bile duct. That's right, Olivia. And you know, one of my cats is talking to me. Sorry. And so I had to go in for a second round of emergency surgery. And whereas the first one was a laparoscopic surgery where they, you know, they poke a little hole in you and, you know, they send in a, you know, they send in a little camera that has a laser attached to it to blast away your gallstones. And that was the first procedure. The second procedure it couldn't be laparoscopic. They had to go in and, you know, cut off the part of the bile duct that had these stones in it. Uh, I suppose the, you know, having even less bile duct than I had before, you know, I suppose that's a, maybe a good predictor that I may never have bile duct cancer, which is a thing. Uh, yay. But at the time, it uh, laid me up at home for about six weeks with crap insurance. No income. And, you know, my, my dad and my brother, you know, finally got back to me and basically they paid my rent while I was recuperating, you know, for which I'm eternally grateful. Uh, but coming out of that was the realization, okay, I have to stop, um, 
you know, what I've been doing is, you know, what's left over from my incidental spending, my fun spending, you know, buying CDs or what have you, is going toward buying VHS tapes and resumes to send out. Uh, the realization hit me at that point, okay, I need to stop spending money on the fun stuff and throw everything at getting the next job before this one literally freaking kills me. And so I started, you know, I literally started skipping meals. Number one, having had my gallbladder out and then having had this other surgery right after, uh, eating was not my favorite thing to do, and I was very quickly discovering, and this is something that has stayed with me to the present day, there's a lot of stuff I can't eat anymore. Because, you know, number one, had the gallbladder out, and then number two, had to have that second surgery that messed up a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, anyone who's ever run into me at something like Classic Gaming Expo or OVGE, and I, you know, went the whole day without eating, that's why because eating sends me to the bathroom in very short order and so generally if I go out there's an event I want to go to um, that's a meal or two meals I'm gonna skip because I don't want to be stuck on the crapper more about me than you ever wanted to know hey hey <laughs> you know you tuned into my podcast this is what you get um, anyway it was actually on my 25th birthday, July 11th, 1997, that I got a call from a guy named Marty Fry. He was the creative services, or he was the promotions director. He was not yet the creative services director. We'll get into that in a little bit. At a UPN station in Green Bay, Wisconsin, WACY Channel 32. It was kind of funny because the uh, UPN station I was working for in Fort Smith, Arkansas was UPN 32. And so I was going to be going from UPN 32 to UPN 32 if I got this job. And he said, have you got about an hour to talk? Because, you know, surprise, I basically want to interview you for this creative services writer producer job that we have open up here. And we have a really interesting situation going on with our station. And, you know, I kind of want to fuel you out to see if you would be the right person to fill this because it's going to take, you know, it's it's going to take a unique way of looking at station promotions to pull this off. So I basically skipped lunch that day and closed and locked the door to the production room. You know, I'm on a phone call. It's personal business. And did this interview. And at the, uh, you know, at the end of this 45 minute to hour interview, Marty said, um, how would you like to move to Green Bay? And you could have knocked my ass over with a feather at that point. Um, you know, there was a little bit of money that he could spare to relocate me. I, you know, it's, I would still be on the hook for a lot of it. But I wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be down to whether or not I could get rid of everything I own and get up there in my own car, which could barely make it across town. And so I... You know, he said, could you be up here in two weeks? I said, let's make it three. He said, okay, first, uh, you know, first full week in August. We'll see you then. And so then I had to figure out how to get up there. That basically involved, um, you know, placing a call to my dad and uh, saying, okay, I'm moving. <laughs> Surprise, I'm moving a thousand miles away from you. You know, I appreciate all your help recently, but I'm moving. 
he, however, he understood that that was um, something that needed to happen because I think he was also very much of the opinion that uh, my current job at that time was killing me. And so he worked a deal with a buddy of his who, you know, was uh, working at a used car lot. Basically, we traded my crap car in and got a car that was um, only two years old at that point. And, you know, un unlike my old car, this one ran <laughs> unquestionably from Arkansas to Wisconsin without complaint. He borrowed a moving van from another buddy of his, literally loaded up all of my stuff. You know, basically, we just emptied my apartment into this truck. Except for the couch. The couch, which had come from the house that I'd grown up in, that couch had to go. It was this leather couch in kind of a futon frame. And uh, we, <laughs> buddy of mine and I, <laughs> after my dad had gone home from loading the truck, uh, buddy of mine and I carried this couch out <laughs> to this open walkway, you know, that led to a balcony. Because I was living in a, I was living in a bunch of repurposed apartments that were originally the second floor of a grain silo. The first floor had been turned into a barber shop and a bar where there's a lot of live music. Which meant no sleep for me. But yeah, there were some decent bands. It was kind of funny when I came back to Arkansas from Wisconsin a few years later. First thing I went to do was you know, buy CDs that were recorded by these crap bands that I was always complaining about playing too loud right underneath me. Because, you know, I, I had gotten attached to the songs just by repeat exposure. But... Anyway, my, my buddy and I uh, hauled this couch out to this balcony. We rolled the dumpster out from behind the building to where it was just right under this balcony. We took a long look around to make sure there were no witnesses. And we chucked this, we chucked this couch off the balcony, pitched it end first into the dumpster, and thus began the phrase that I have kept with me my whole life, which is, we're firing our futon torpedoes. <laughs> And so, that piece of furniture done away with, <laughs> with no witnesses, and, uh, and the rest of the stuff loaded into the truck and a car that would actually make the drive, my dad and I made a, uh, you know, <laughs> made a dead run for Wisconsin from northwest Arkansas. Uh, we stayed in a hotel room one night, which was an interesting experience because I had two cats at the time named Othello and Iago, one black, one white, figured out. And uh, this whole thing terrified them. But we, uh, you know, we got to Green Bay, found an apartment for me, and, you know, got the deposit, you know, my dad basically paid the deposit. And, uh, you know, I paid first month's rent out of the money that I'd gotten to relocate to Wisconsin. And there I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, on my own. We had four days to spare before work started. Um, and the interesting situation that was spoken of with regards to this station was that I would only be doing half of its promotions. It would This station would have two people doing promotions because they were going to do an interesting experiment with their daytime programming, where basically they were going to suck up all the syndicated kids' shows available to them, and program that 
until basically from sign-on to the end of school hours. Now, this was kind of an interesting way for them to meet their FCC obligation to provide programming in the public service. This is a smart way of doing it. Now, it was also a money-losing way of doing it because sales at this station had already thrown their arms up and said, <laughs> you know, bananas in pajamas? <laughs> VR Troopers? What is this? We're not... <laughs> not VR Troopers. Uh, VR Troopers was... Uh, I think that was a... No, that wasn't a Fox show. It, it, it was riffing on a Fox show because of basically bargain budget Power Rangers. And I think VR Troopers was off the air by that time. But you had stuff like uh, bananas in pajamas and other syndicated children's fare. And they were going to have a, another producer do that. And they had promoted someone from within who... Um, a lady named Kim who's still to my day is still to this day one of my best friends that I've ever made in that business because she was um, she was she was smart enough that I found myself wondering over and over again what are you doing working at this station because I got up there and things were in a bit of disarray which was kind of soul-crushing because that was what I had hoped to escape the thing was that there was a power struggle on the second floor. The second floor was creative services. It was commercial production. It was station promotions for two stations because this UPN station was, again, a secondary station that was being managed by the company that owned the local NBC station. So I went from Fox and UPN to NBC and UPN. Now, Marty, the guy who had hired me and had conducted my interview, was the promotions manager over the NBC station and and over the UPN station, but he realized that this unique situation they were going into was going to require more hands and more minds. And so Kim had already been promoted from within to handle this huge block of children's programming, you know, this almost PBS-like thing, except with commercial breaks that no one would buy commercials in. And since the station was WACY and it was UPN 32, the children's, you know, the all-day children's block was Wacky 32. And, you know, she did an awesome job of that. I'm, I'm glad she was doing that, and I got called in to do the, the network stuff and the evening programming and the syndicated shows and the weekends and, uh, and all that jazz because what she was doing was a monumental task of just basically creating this whole separate station identity that at 4 o'clock in the afternoon would suddenly revert to UPN 32. So it was a, it was a really bizarre situation. So I, I reported to work uh, the first you know the first Monday in August of 1997 and the thing is I was looking at our programming and I noticed, you know, all my favorites. Hey, all my favorites are here. And I'm sure there was some part of me that was like, hey, I can record the satellite feeds and take them home. But something else started clicking in my brain because there was, you know, also the list of upcoming shows that we were going to be carrying. They'd picked up um, 
Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict. They had picked up Team Knight Rider, which is something that, if there is any natural justice in the universe, hopefully you have forgotten or never heard of by now. It was an attempt to do Knight Rider... It was an attempt to do sugar-free, Hasselhoff-free Knight Rider as... almost. It was almost kind of a riff on Power Rangers itself, because it was five people with transforming vehicles that would talk to them, so it's kind of like if you took... <laughs> if you took the Transformers and turned each one into Kit. It's <laughs> a terrible show. Um, Disney was turning Honey, I Shrunk the Kids into a series that fall. And that was actually probably the most successful of the new shows, aside from Earth Final Conflict, because it... Um, I think it ran two or three seasons, even though somewhere in the middle of that, it stopped being syndicated and moved to Disney Channel. We were also picking up the syndication packages for various MGM shows that had started on Showtime, such as Poltergeist The Legacy, Stargate SG-1, The Outer Limits, and, of course, we were carrying, you know, we were a UPN station, so we were carrying Star Trek Voyager. The station also had both the... You know, to keep in mind, this was 97, Deep Space Nine was still on. We had the weekly first-run syndication package for Deep Space Nine, as well as the nightly strip syndication package for Deep Space Nine. And we also had Babylon 5, which was going to air four more episodes in the fall before disappearing from syndication and relocating to uh, TNT on cable. I looked at you know, this collision of programming. You have to keep in mind, in 97, UPN's network programming was all over the damn place. They didn't know what they wanted to be, and they were trying to be all things to all people. In the middle of the week, and you have to keep in mind, uh, UPN was only running programming Mondays through Wednesdays at this time, and uh, Voyager had just moved to Wednesdays. Their Monday and Tuesday programming was very, um, very urban slanted, and nothing to do with the stuff that was running on Wednesdays. And so I had the crazy idea... You know, we've got all these syndicated shows scattered all over the place, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning. What if we don't worry about what UPN is doing as far as branding and identity, and we create our own brand? And so I drew up this plan for something called the Primetime Invasion. And... Yes, <laughs> yes, an hour later, we're finally getting there. The idea was that we were basically going to be Northeast Wisconsin's own little sci-fi channel. We had all this first-run programming, you know, some of it fairly high-profile, some of it with followings already, because Stargate, for example, was coming from Showtime with its own following, and so this was going to be where you could see the reruns without having to wait for Showtime to repeat anything. Um, and the same goes for The Outer Limits, that had a significant following at the time, coming off of Showtime. This was before either of these shows had been cancelled by Showtime and picked up by Sci-Fi. That would happen much later. But all of this programming was scattered all over the place, and so since we had Thursday and Friday nights open, and we had the weekends open, the network was not programming those nights, I actually drew up a schedule. 
Now this is a big no-no because you know what? TV stations have program directors who decide where this stuff is going to go and they understand things like program flow. You know, like which demographic is watching this show? Let's see if we can keep their butts in the seats by putting another show right after it that appeals to the same demographic. And that's that is a very important thing. And here I was, 25 years old, freshly imported from Arkansas, and no one was letting me forget that. I like to think that I don't sound like I'm from Arkansas, but there were certain verbal idiosyncrasies that had crept into common usage with me. One of them, which I took a lot of crap for, was um, I, I'm fixing to do something. This, this means I'm going to do something, but it's a very southern thing. I'm, you know, I'm fixing to do this spot. I'm fixing to go down to the edit bay and edit this spot. You know, I'm fixing to go into the audio booth and, you know, record voiceovers for voiceover credits for this week. You know, I'm fixing to sit down and write a bunch of stuff. You know, can you guys leave so I can have peace and quiet? And I, you know, I took lots, lots of crap for the Arkansas-isms that no matter how well-spoken I was, uh, we're still coming out of my mouth. And that, uh, <laughs> that made me feel so welcome. <laughs> I have to, and, and we'll get back to that later because it becomes a more serious issue down the road, believe it or not. But, you know, here I was, 25 years old, from Arkansas, coming from a no-budget station, which meant that, you know, the reality was that I had been hired for a job that I barely knew how to do in theory, now that, you know, I was at a real station with a real budget in number 69 market in the United States, uh, I had to, you know, I had to get up to speed really fast. And here I was trying to do the program director's job for him. And there was, there was some discussion of that. You know, okay, you're doing someone else's job. You barely know how to do yours. You know, is this a hill you want to die on? But it was central to this branding idea that I had, which was that we would do the UPN 32 invasion, and we would block all of these sci-fi shows night by night. And, and we would not worry about how UPN is trying to brand itself. We would brand ourselves differently and do our own thing. And so after a little bit of adjustment to my suggested schedule, which, you know, these adjustments turned out to be very wise. <laughs> um, a, a schedule was drawn up where starting with Voyager on Wednesday nights, you know, on the network programming, we had sci-fi shows running in prime time Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. So basically everything that wasn't UPN's urban programming block, we were geeking out on. Because we were the last rated station in the market, damn it. <laughs> what do we have to lose? And I was certainly well acquainted with that situation. And so thus was born the UPN 32 primetime invasion. We launched a bunch of image spots, basically rebranding the station. The, the funny thing was, so the, the daytime hours were now spoken for as Wacky 32. The evening hours... Wednesday through Sunday nights were now the primetime invasion. You know, without a single normal sitcom in sight. Um, Mondays and Tuesdays, we ran the spots UPN gave us to promote those nights, but really, we didn't care. <laughs> because we were trying to 
lift ourselves higher than the UPN program schedule at that time could lift us. Here's the thing. It worked. There are not a whole lot of things that I brag about in this life because, you know, in the words of Zaphod Beeblebrox's therapist, I'm just this guy, you know? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just this guy who's been running the site that this podcast is from for 30 years. <laughs> you know, 20 years on the web plus 10 years before that in the BBS world, you know, back before there were podcasts. You know, when I would just talk to myself and no one would listen, except my cats. I, there's very little in my life, aside from raising my kids, that I've done that I would say is exceptional or worthy of any kind of bragging. But the Nielsen ratings that came back right before Christmas, 97, told us that our little Green Bay, Wisconsin UPN affiliate was now one of the ten fastest growing UPN affiliates in the country. Now. How much is that to really brag about? <laughs> Mathematically, any increase from zero is 100%. Uh, <laughs> so it's, um, it's kind of a question as to, you know, what really are you bragging about? But suddenly we had the network paying attention to us saying, what, what are you guys doing over there? And so they were still running their affiliate relations newsletter. And I, uh, you know, I told them what I was doing now at this other UPN station. You know, I <laughs> it's like Quantum Leap. You know, Earl wakes up at a different UPN 32 every day and tries to fight the good fight. And the, the funny thing is, because the thing that I was doing was rebranding the station as something other than central to UPN, as I was rebranding our UPN station as this whole other thing, this material I sent to affiliate relations at UPN about the primetime invasion never got published for the other affiliates because I think they were kind of scared of it. This this was not how they wanted to see us lifting ourselves out of the doldrums. Now, let me interject here and say that when, when I say it worked, I mean the whole thing worked. I mean not just the invasion, but also the wacky part because the metric in which the station had catapulted upward by 46% was households and that is that's a pretty strong indicator that the children's programming probably had a lot to do with it and when I say it worked I mean all of these decisions to to own you know to own the children's block and you know to boldly own it and go out there and say we owned it. You know, we are the station with children's programming. And to completely own the fact that we had all of this sci-fi stuff blocked back to back to back. And to not shy away from it. You have to keep in mind that I had come from a station in Arkansas where one of the one of the shows that we heard about the most, if anything ever messed up on the air, during this show, we would hear from the Babylon 5 fans, and quite rightly too, because that was a show that was not for background viewing. You, you know, you kind of had to take notes and flowchart that show, and it was the first of its kind, really, to do that. 
in that particular genre. And, you know, anytime I suggested, well, you know, we could try to, you know, we're running it at 2 in the morning on Tuesday, we could run it after Renegade at 3 in the morning on Thursday, and the management would be like, no, just screw it, I hate that show. The, the owner of the station literally hated anything sci-fi, unless it was bringing him uh, lots of attention. Yeah, he tolerated Voyager, but he later said that the whole reason that he signed up with the Warner Brothers syndication package that came to be anchored by Babylon 5 was that the year before Babylon 5 came on, that same syndication package had had a miniseries about the history of the Old West, which was very much his thing. He, uh, you know, he stated many a time that he wished he had dropped it after that. Wow. So it was kind of nice to be someplace where we could say, hey, we've got these shows, we own these shows, we are where you go for this kind of show. Why, you know, why shy away from it? Why hide it? You know, why, uh, you know, brush it under the welcome mat and hope no one sees it? So, I think that was a big part of the success that WACY was having at this point. And, but I, you know, I bring up the children's programming, you know, being a huge contributing factor to the ratings bump, because I also don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to assume sole authorship of this success. You know, there were... There were a bunch of talented people there. I was just glad to be there to help. And I will also say this about that. This was the first time I'd really worked with a team in, you know, in the creative side of broadcast because, you know, previously when I had kind of been sucked into KPBI, KFDF's production department, there was a there was an overlap where I was there with the guy who was previously in charge of commercial production, and then it seemed like the first chance they got, they got rid of him. Of course, he was doing some he was doing some extracurricular activity on company time that made it easy for them to dismiss him, and that that's unfortunate and that's not good, but. There were things said to me that kind of indicated, you know, you're you're going to be the only guy here soon doing this, you know, which is how I wound up working, you know, eighteen and twenty hour days, which is how you wind up without a guy doing that. So it was nice to have a team. It was nice to have a room full of people that you could brainstorm with, bounce ideas off of. You know, if I was completely burned out trying to come up with ways to make, to make sci-fi sound cool, and syndicated 90s sci-fi, no less, which is practically its own, <laughs> its own very cheesy genre that is an acquired taste by modern standards. Um, you know, it would be fun to brainstorm with Kim on the kids' stuff. You know, or... Sometimes I wouldn't even brainstorm. Sometimes I would just sit there and do a mystery science theater thing on every idea that anyone had. 
but that would occasionally lead to something that we could use. And so, he's probably the most annoying person in the universe to work with. But it was, uh, it was really neat having, you know, more or less a writer's room. Because that's what it was. You were with a bunch of concept people. And, you know, you would throw out a concept and maybe it wouldn't be good enough and you know I would rather hear it from my peers than from management who then starts wondering who the hell is this guy we've dragged in here from Arkansas who isn't having good ideas you know there were ideas that I had that weren't great and you know I'm a firm believer in you know when you're brainstorming throwing out the ideas that are obviously not suitable for consumption by other human beings because sometimes there is something there that can be latched onto and used. And I have found since then that that sort of collective that we had in that room, that sort of brainstorming four-headed monster that we had, is a rare and precious thing. The, the ratings for Voyager went up quite a bit, but what was boosting our ratings in the Nielsen's in November of 97 was not UPN's programming. It was all this other stuff. It was Earth Final Conflict, and it was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and it was Hercules and Xena and Babylon 5 and uh, Poltergeist and Outer Limits and Stargate. And um, what else was there? Sci Factor, Chronicles of the Paranormal. It was such a weird show. It's like, hey, it's the Canadian version of the X-Files. Um, that was that stuff and, and owning that stuff saying that we are we are the station where you can go to geek out and starting in early 98 the uh, you know of course Green Bay you, you know your whole life revolves around football whether you are a football fan or not um Many of you have seen the, <laughs> the the mystical lucky Packers mug show up on my YouTube videos. It's a thing, and it's been with me since then. In fact, I just took a sip out of it right now. Um, but <laughs> the you know the entire cultural life of Green Bay, Wisconsin, revolved around the Packers, and. Starting in January 98, you know, we had a, a movie package that I was handed material for, you know, make a promo out of this. And I looked at it, and there was the, the syndicated TV premiere of the special edition of Star Wars, you know, the one where Han Solo steps on Jabba's tail and his eyes bug out. <laughs> because it's funny, and we can do CGI now. And there were other, there were other action and sci-fi movies in this package. And so I did this... Um, you know, so I extended the primetime invasion to like our Saturday and Sunday afternoon movies. And furthermore, you know, went into this spot boldly proclaiming there's something to watch other than football in this town, finally. <clears throat> and let me tell you, before that stuff ever made it to air, there was some serious hemming and hawing from management like, whoa there, Arkansas boy, do you really want to say that? You really want to come to Green Bay, Wisconsin and say watch something other than football? 
think about this, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like your whole career and your safety once you walk out the back door of the station are riding on your answer to this. And I was like, sure, sure I do. The Green Bay Packers are once again headed for the Super Bowl, and there's only one place you can see the game. But this isn't it. But this doesn't mean you won't see some flying tackles, the occasional blitz, a long drive, maybe a quick third down conversion, and you might just see a long bomb. We're skipping the World Championship and taking over the universe instead. Five nights a week, we're controlling everything you see and hear with the primetime invasion only on UPN 32. We're not playing games anymore. In 1998, UPN expanded their network lineup to cover Monday through Friday. And so that sort of crunched the invasion down to Wednesday and the weekends. Wednesday being the night that they had Voyager and Seven Days on. And... All of our uh, syndicated programming, you know, your Hercules, your Xena, your Earth Final Conflict, your Poltergeist and Stargate and Outer Limits, all that stuff, um, that got compressed down to Saturday and Sundays, and it started in the afternoons instead of the evenings. And so the prime time invasion just became the UPN 32 invasion. In 1998, I actually got flown by the station, you know, they, they covered my expenses for this trip, to fly to Toronto for a conference called Promax, which is an annual gathering of station promotions people. And my boss was already going, and he said, you know, we really should send Earl to this thing because he's, you know, he's doing some impressive stuff. And, you know, and he also kind of took me aside and told me, you know, this, he said, it's not that I'm trying to get rid of you, but this is where you get your next job, is you go to this and you network like crazy, and you show everyone what you've done here, and you impress the hell out of people, and you wind up working for a station in Chicago or Dallas or someplace like that. I was like, hey, okay, free trip to Canada, I'll go. And it was kind of funny because it was at that conference that um, I, you know, there was no opportunity for me to present what I had done because I you kind of got the impression that at the network level, they weren't happy that we had shifted our branding from UPN 32 to primetime invasion. However, you know, I, I took tapes with me and show them to people. Not really that I was trying to get a job. I was just like, you know, here's what we've done, and it's been wildly successful for us. And I, uh, you know, kind of got cornered by someone who was there from the network delegation. They, they had a party. They, they set up an impromptu bar on the rooftop of the building where this conference was being held in Toronto. And so you had this open-air balcony thing high above Toronto, and they had taken like three or four mini bars up there. And, you know, me being me, I was just like, you know, can I have like um, pineapple juice on the rocks? And these guys would look at you like, yeah, okay. Aren't you going to get a real drink? It's like, uh, no, because I don't. But um, at this kind of makeshift <laughs> pop-up tiki bar thing that they were doing on the rooftop of this building, this hotel in Toronto... Um, got pulled aside by a couple of people from the UPN delegation. You know, they're from the network. 
and they were like, do you want to come work in L.A.? You know, Marty wasn't wrong. I, I don't know who had seen the tape or or what was up. Now, these were the affiliate promotions people from UPN. And I kind of got the impression they were kind of low to middle level affiliate promotions people at UPN. These were the people that I had submitted my material to where the material had gone no further. They knew what I was doing in Green Bay as far as creating a whole different brand identity. And, you know, they just basically explained it as, you seem to have the knack for this. That's a really, that's a really cool thing you did, doing your own, doing your own programming block, doing your own branding. You know, how would you like to come out and do this at the network level? And I had to go back to my room and kind of think about it until I saw these people the next day. And here's the thing. I was really happy in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was it was a town that kind of suited me. There was stuff to do. Um, I remember going and hanging out at a bar called Jillian's, which, you know, it's like, you don't drink? What are you doing hanging out at a bar? Well, Jillian's had a whole wall full of old arcade games. And so my buddy Clark, who did not have a working vehicle, he had only a bike, he liked to go to Jillian's and, you know, hit on the ladies. Man, I wanted to go to Jillian's and play the games. And so, you know, he was like, hey, can I hitch a ride to Jillian's with you? And I'm like, sure, let's go. And so, you know, off to Jillian's we would go and I would play games and he would, you know, <laughs> he would try to do his own thing. I'll leave that to your imagination. Like, you know, what, what do guys do in bars? Um, what do single guys do in bars? Well, there you go me I was playing dig dug uh, <laughs> and so you know I, I finally had this I was finally at this place where I was doing what I wanted to be doing I was doing it to a standard that I wanted to be doing it at because I had learned to edit on an avid and so now I was you know doing really cool stuff with nonlinear editing which took you out of the realm of generation loss from tape dubs and you know, I was I was enjoying my life. It, it's not like I had friends over and entertained every night, but, you know, I had friends who occasionally wanted me to hang out with them. And that's cool. For an introvert like me, this is a perfect situation. You know, I could hang out with my cats at home, or, you know, there's one night we went to some comedy club and laughed at how bad the stand-up was on open mic night. And I remember Clark and Kim just kind of like elbowing me in the ribs. You should get up there. You should get up there. You're funny. No. <laughs> no, because that's not my thing. I'm going to hide in a basement in Utah behind a microphone and be funny. That's what I'm going to do. See, I could see it coming from a long ways off. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I had a life at work and outside of work. And... I didn't want to deal with the congestion of L.A. I didn't want to deal with the housing prices and the gas prices in L.A. I was really happy where I was. And so I ran into these people the next day because they were screening. Um, they were doing the first screening of the, the, first, the pilot of the animated Dilbert cartoon that UPN was going to be picking up um, early in 1999 as a mid-season show which was a big deal for them. And, you know, this is going to be our breakout show. 
And they said that about every show. This is going to be our The Secret Life of Desmond Pfeiffer. That's our breakout show. Oh, God, no, it was not their breakout show, <laughs> said the narrator. But, um, you know, these, I went and made eye contact with these people at one of the presentations, one of the screenings the next day. And, you know, let's hit the door. You know, we all stepped outside, and I just politely turned them down. And they were shocked that I did not want to move to Los Angeles and work at the network level. Here's the thing. Um, you look at what happened with UPN eventually. You know, they started, you know, if they were already flailing around trying to find an audience before, under Dean Valentine as the president who came from uh, Disney Television, boy, they were flailing even more then. And, you know, and then it gets into, you know, Dilbert's the show that's going to break us out. You know, WWE Smackdown, that's the show that's going to break us out. Well, that actually was the show that broke them out. But that came along in, uh, in early 99. And it was about that time that the station management was like, you know, can you do something other than the invasion? And I said, sure. And so I came up with this sort of Windows themed because integrating the station and the station's website was a big priority at that time. So it was like, you know, let's make the whole thing look like it's on a browser. And so you'd have these little things, these little, <laughs> little interstitials in between shows that looked like, you know, yes, preparing to stream this show, preparing to run this show. I, you know, I'm loading tonight's episode of Voyager. There, you know, there was no hint of the invasion, and you know, I call this the Windows campaign because that's what it was based on. They hated that. <laughs> no matter how I dressed it up and made it cute with all these old retro gaming sounds that I spent a lot of time off the clock at home recording off of my computer with MAME. Oh, they hated it. They hated it with a passion. And it was about this time that one of the uh, one of the guys in commercial production wanted to start sliding into station promotions instead, and he basically, you know, went around me and pitched an idea that they would end up picking up instead. If they dismantled... The Windows thing did make it to air, but boy, did they dismantle it quickly. And it was also around this time that the station manager made it very clear that they were about to wrap up the Wacky 32 experiment. Kim had already moved on to a station in Madison, Wisconsin, doing news promotions, and I always, I always marveled and envied at her stories when I heard back from her about what it was like to work in a, you know, in a union-run station. I, you know, there was no more of this 18 to 20-hour shift jazz, that's for sure. But as a result, without her there to steer the ship. You know, the rest of us tried to keep Wacky 32 afloat, but the contracts were expiring on a lot of that stuff, and, you know, the management had made it clear they were tired of losing money on having this nearly 10-hour <laughs> block of cartoons every day. As much public acclaim as it got us, what mattered was that it wasn't raking in advertising money, and that's that's kind of sad. So, in a way, you know, coming up, uh, you know, coming up through the summer of '99, in the spring and summer of '99, the invasion was falling apart. Wacky Thirty Two was, you know, they were hitting the undo button on that, and there were other people 
on the second floor who were you know, hungrier for my job than I was. I, I had gotten a little bit comfortable with it by that time, I admit. So it may be just as well, which is kind of a horrible thing to say about this, that I came home from uh, hanging out with Clark one night in September of 99 and found that my answering machine was blowing up chock full of messages. My older brother had been trying to reach me ever since, uh, you know, ever since what should have been closing time, but he didn't know I was going to be out. And you have to keep in mind this was in the days before cell phones. But, you know, all the messages were, call me, call me right now, really urgent, give me a call. And I finally got a hold of him. He was still in Austin, Texas at the time. And the, uh, the thing he had been trying to tell me all day was that Dad had had a stroke. And it was really bad. It was really bad. It's about this point that I need to kind of rewind and tell a story that parallels all the fun that I was having. There was there was something of a downside to working in Wisconsin, and that was that to a certain degree, certain people, both on the second floor and off, who basically they never let me forget that I was from Arkansas. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't welcome to Wisconsin. You're a Wisconsinite now. It was, oh, it's the Arkansas guy. You know, I don't want to go so far as to call it harassment and hazing, but there was definitely kind of a, a, a keeping at arm's length that was uh, a bit uncomfortable on my end. It, there were people at high levels at the station who were participating in this, and, you know, as we are seeing from current events now, when you have someone at a high level who's being an asshole... Uh, it, other people who have been waiting to come out of their shells and show their true asshole selves uh, are emboldened and licensed to do so by that behavior. You know, when I had gotten this news about my dad, he was married at the time to his third wife, someone who I would only shudderingly refer to as my stepmother. This was a person that I did not get along with well at all. My brother and I had some you know, really honest concerns about whether or not she was going to stick around in the bad times. She was happy to stick around with him and, you know, hose him down with booze and spend his retirement money. Uh, what was she going to do, you know, now that it was about to be a lot more difficult to be in his orbit? So I felt it, between you know, sort of the uncomfortable treatment that I had gotten and this crisis going on at home and it, sort of also the feeling that I was being edged out of my own territory, I thought, you know, um, maybe it's time to go home. I was also engaged at the time to someone who I you know, would be marrying about a year later. Once I got, you know, once I was back in Arkansas, and and that played a big part in it too. Now I think we all know how that worked out, but at the time, you know, it was a big consideration because she had come up to visit me in Wisconsin, and she didn't like Wisconsin. You know, she didn't like being somewhere where it was, 
you know, snowing all the time. <laughs> and I hope you're laughing along with me because, um, you know, at her urging, <laughs> in order to keep the family all in one place, I, uh, you know, I moved to Utah with her and the kids even after the divorce. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, don't like snow all the time. Is that working out for you? Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of things that kind of signaled to me my time in Wisconsin was over. And we're talking about a period of my life that ended 20 years ago this year. And I kind of fell back to earth, went back to Arkansas, and had to uh, you know, reacquaint myself with the local stations again, send out tapes, and, uh, you know, take on a few odd jobs here and there. And that's what <laughs> the previous podcast was about. Looking back on the time that I spent in Wisconsin, whatever my personal discomfort level may have been, because I think I think... What really bugged me about that was that I had come here to make a completely new start, a completely blank slate. You know, I was not moving from one part of Arkansas to another part of Arkansas. I was moving to a place where no one knew me. They brought me up there on the basis of the, the good work that I had done before at another station. And they, you know, they kind of took me at face value on that kind of sort of now the whole thing about never letting me forget that I was not one of them uh, I don't know there is a part of me that may have exacerbated that as well we are talking about 20 years ago and I was a different person than I am now I was coming off the back of some really bad stuff personally, professionally, and I was just wanting to reboot my whole life. It was something that was a lot easier to do then than it is now, I've noticed. But there were a lot of laughs in that second floor promo writer's room. You know, it was it was a time in my life when I was firing on all cylinders professionally. I was finally learning who I was going to be personally. I miss it. It was it wasn't a perfect time in my life, but it was really one of the best. And something that I will uh, post a picture of on the show page at uh, www.thelogbook.com/slash/this-tape is that I still have. <laughs> 22 years later, I still have that piece of paper announcing that our station had seen a 46% boost in household ratings versus the prior November when I was not working there. Maybe that's kind of sad. <laughs> I've still got that. You know, it's like I feel like Al Bundy still crowing about that high school football touchdown from decades ago. But I keep it around. I keep it with me just to remind myself that all of this stuff that I'm into that may not necessarily have anything to do with work, I took it to work this one time, and all of a sudden, I was at my best. 
I watching? What am I listening to? What am I looking forward to? Well, holy crap, let's keep this kind of brief because I didn't realize that I had just gone on for over an hour about these two television stations that I'd worked at. And those were not the last television stations I worked at either. But, um, yeah, I kind of kind of went on longer than expected. So what have I been watching? I finally uh, finished watching the most recent season of Doctor Who with Jodie Whittaker as well as the New Year's Day special. And here's the thing. Uh, there is kind of this middle-aged white guy knuckle-dragger movement that seems to be very much of the opinion that the Doctor should always be a white male. And I think this most recent season really proves them wrong. The stories were spectacular, they were heartfelt, and they were very much of a piece with what Doctor Who has done before. The episodes like Demons of the Punjab and Rosa, where, you know, the TARDIS team winds up up to their necks in history that they cannot change, and yet they have to fight really hard to keep it on track. Um, the, that's very much, that to me is very much on the same moral level as the storytelling from the Aztecs in 1964, which was the first time that that particular story trope played out in Doctor Who. But this most recent season did it so skillfully and so heartfelt that, you know, it was just a wonder to behold. So, you know, again, the Doctor Who fans who were you know, going nuts about, you know, you know, this has turned into social justice warrior storytelling. No, that was happening in, oh, I'd say in 1964 when Ian convinced the Thals that they had to be perhaps a little bit less pacifist in the face of the aggression of the Daleks and you know that they needed to do something other than be completely passive I think that's when the social justice warriors took over Doctor Who it, it, you know, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't something that happened in 2017 or 2018. You know, it happened in, in 1963 or 64, if you like. So, very much enjoyed the latest season. I'm kind of crushed that we have to wait until 2020 for another full season. But the reason that happens is that any money that the BBC makes from the sales of its programming internationally and from merchandise related to its programming goes into a general fund that basically powers the whole BBC. So it's not like there is a specific budget set aside for Doctor Who and Doctor Who makes back its own budget and then you get more Doctor Who the next year. No, every cent that Doctor Who makes um, you know, also funds everything else at the BBC. And so, even though Doctor Who is still raking in money from merchandising and memorabilia, that money isn't just funding Doctor Who, it's funding everything else imaginable. That's kind of frustrating, 
but we do at least know that the show will be back in 2020. And, uh, of course, Jody Whitaker, Jody Whitaker will still be the doctor. Thank goodness. The show is just, it is fresher and more unpredictable and exciting than it has been in a long time. Yeah, I'm a continuity and retcon junkie. I've written two pretty good-sized books on Doctor Who. And so, uh, you know, I, I stand to benefit from uh, continuity references and things like that. But it was so refreshing to not have all of that baggage to explain in the most recent season. I mean, really, the biggest continuity reference you had was you had the Dalek and you had... I'm all for more of that freshness. Um, Doctor Who suffered in the 80s when it had its head up its own backside with continuity. And I would argue that that may have happened again the further into the 2010s that you got. So, you know, here's to... Here's to more of the Doctor. More of the 13th Doctor. Thank you very much. Jody is awesome. I love it when she scrunches her face up without any regard to <laughs> how derpy it looks. <laughs> She's just kind of adorable in that way. All of these short treks have aired now. The uh, 15 to 20 minute short pieces taking place in the Star Trek universe. Mainly in the universe of Discovery. Um, to kind of keep the fans happy in between seasons of Star Trek Discovery. There were four short treks. Uh, one of them I already talked about in the previous podcast, which was Runaway. Uh, three of them have aired since then. Uh, Calypso, The Brightest Star, and The Escape Artist, the last of which is a surprisingly enjoyable little hairy mud story. And... Uh, Calypso really was the outlier in there because you have no idea how or even if that is going to tie into the rest of the Discovery story. And because you have Discovery as an empty ship that's been adrift for a thousand years and its onboard computer has basically evolved to the point of sentience. And so... She, you know, rescues an escape pod that has a uh, a fleeing alien soldier inside, who's just trying to make his way back home after a war, and you know, really, he has no inside knowledge of the Federation or of Discovery, and this whole relationship ensues, and I I really find myself wondering that that's very intriguing. You know, how is this going to play out with the rest of Discovery's story? You know, have they planted an end point that they now have to work toward? The Brightest Star was basically uh, Seru's origin story, and it was just wonderful. Um, and I believe that one was another Erica Lippold and uh, or Bo Yan Kim. I, I may be saying it wrong. She has a nickname, and I've completely forgotten what it was. And, you know, I don't like to call people nicknames, you know, unless they are approved by the person themselves. And I would have to stop recording and go look it up. But basically, a great little self-contained story from the writers who will be 
um, creating, writing, and producing the Section 31 series. So again, I, despite my discomfort with the subject matter, I think we're in good hands. Season 2 of The Orville has started. I've only watched the first two episodes so far because stuff has been going on. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It seems like the humor has been toned down and they are almost going for... Whereas the first season was kind of a comedy version of Star Trek The Next Generation, this one it's almost like they're trying to actually do... You know, I, my joke all along has been that the Orville is a next-gen fan film that someone managed to sell to Fox and get on the air. And the second season, boy, it really kind of drives that home because we're dealing with the the crew's interpersonal relationships. I mean, there are jokes, there are punchlines, there are comedy setups, but they are deployed much more sparsely so far this season. Something else that is deployed, deployed much more sparsely, I said, as I tripped over my own tongue, is the music. The music from season one of The Orville was fantastic. Because Seth MacFarlane had kind of, he, you know, I keep falling back on the line that he's making a you know, very expensive next-gen fan film. But, I mean, he repeated the formula whereby you have two composers alternating week to week and, you know, utilizing a main show theme that was done by a completely different composer. The music from Season 1 was fantastic, and we'll be talking about the soundtrack here in a little bit, but the music in Season 2 seems to be very, very sparse. You know, not as, uh, you know, music was slathered all over the episodes in Season 1, and less so in Season 2, and when it's great soundtrack music, I don't really mind that, and so I'm kind of worried that the the show's music budget has been slashed savagely somewhere, you know, as part of keeping it on the air, because Seth MacFarlane's gone on the record as saying that they're spending about as much on the music as they are on the effects. I mean, they've got a real orchestra, and a big one, recording the scores for each episode under composers like John Debney and Joel McNeely. That's the guy, Joel McNeely, who had done episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, yes. I have completely forgotten how to talk. Um, (laughs) But they've got great composers. They've got big orchestras playing the music, and it's just fantastic. It was like, season one was like a little movie every week. This season, it seems a bit more constrained. We'll see how that goes. There, there's an episode this season that I haven't watched yet, and there will be another one on tomorrow night as I record this. So we'll see what happens with the Orville. I still, I still like it. I'm kind of jazzed that they're already dangling it. California is already dangling a tax incentive carrot in front of Fox to keep the show on the air for a third season. Now the Orville is also uh, finally. We're getting a soundtrack from season one, that great music that I was talking about, thanks to La La Land Records. Getting a two-CD set with music from each of the episodes, which I guess that's the great thing about <laughs> these little 11 and 13 episode seasons that are the norm for American TV now. That uh, you can get a soundtrack that represents literally the whole season. And that will be dropping on January the 22nd. 
Uh, there is already a pre-order link for it in the logbook.com store, and I will provide a link to that on our show page at www.thelogbook.com slash this tape for the Orville soundtrack. I've already got mine pre-ordered, and I'm really looking forward to it. Something else I've been looking forward to for, oh, 23 years is a release of the full score from Apollo 13. And yes, we're talking about Apollo 13 that came out in 1995. Entrada is finally releasing a two-CD complete score of Apollo 13. James Horner's, you know, really one of James Horner's best because I I like James Horner when he's doing original music and not when he is putting his own stuff through the blender and recycling it for another movie. Uh, see also Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and then watch Aliens back-to-back. It's almost the same soundtrack. Um, Apollo 13, however, was uh, very much a completely original work and really one of his best. And so it, it's nice to finally be getting it on CD instead of having to sit and letting <laughs> sit and let the DVD menu play through for two hours to hear all the music, which was uh, you know pretty much the only game in town before. The only official soundtrack Apollo 13 had released in 1995, although apparently uh, Ron Howard lobbied really hard for a release of the full score at that time when that was not a common thing for labels or studios to spring for. Uh, the only soundtrack we got was a soundtrack that mixed Horner's score with some of the contemporary music, you know, from 1970 that was featured in the movie, as well as copious splashes of dialogue, which, you know, that is one of my least favorite things on a soundtrack album, is dialogue. One soundtrack album where you will find no dialogue is Doctor Who Series 11, the season that just finished... This is the first time in the history of the revived Doctor Who that we have had a new composer. Murray Gold stayed with the show from 2005 through uh, 2017, the Christmas special. And, you know, I love Murray Gold's music, but anyone after that length of time is going to start kind of maybe even unconsciously recycling themselves. See also James Horner. Um, Doctor Who Series 11, we had a new composer, a new take on the theme song, and just a new take on the show's music altogether. And it's really spectacular. It's, uh, you know, two CDs of sheer wonder. And very, very enjoyable. I highly recommend it. And I'll post a link to that on the show page as well. I think I'm really going to cut it short there because boy, this has turned into a really long podcast. But um, one with a lot of fond memories. A lot of frustrated memories, but a lot of fond memories as well.
Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape, on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash the logbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green. And our shiny new theme music is provided by Jazar on betterwithmusic.com. 